Psalms, and uh, we're going to wrap up our series in the Psalms with Psalm 51, a very well-known psalm. Um, and if you don't have your Bible, the, the text in its entirety is there in the bulletin, Psalm 51. My, uh, mine and Dana's first apartment, this was my last year of seminary, our first home together as a married couple in St. Louis, was a tiny one-bedroom apartment. And um, beside the front door of the apartment, there was a closet, and and that was the closet where, like, the big winter coats go. St. Louis has pretty cold winters, so the big winter coats there and raincoats and that kind of thing. Uh, One morning when it was still cold, I was getting ready for classes and and kind of scrambling to get stuff together. And um, I put on my coat, and then I remembered I'd poured my coffee in my to-go coffee cup, but I'd left it in the kitchen. So I go in the kitchen... And as I reach for my coffee cup, I look on the sleeve of my coat where there is a huge spider on the sleeve. And you know that feeling of just, So I just somehow knocked it into the sink and used the sprayer to put it down the drain and, you know, blended it and, and with great joy. And got through with that. And then my eye fell on the other sleeve, the nest of the mother that I had just blended. And um, if you feel the heebie-jeebies now, you you should think about how I felt at that moment. But it it just completely changed my relationship with the closet. It did because, I mean, you know how you sort of have a sense that under your bed or in a closet, like, there may be the occasional ant, you know, or little spider or dust mites or, or whatever. But... I never, I never felt the same about that coat or the... Cl- I just kind of looked at that closet now, you know, in a different way because this, this big, ugly thing was in there. And it... I mean, I knew there were things, but a big, ugly thing came out. Think about it this way. Um, everybody's got... They, we all know we've got things in our heart that we don't like. I mean, we could all say, yeah, I make mistakes and I blow it and all that. But there are times where something so big and so ugly comes out. Actually, the blessing is you, you, you don't look at yourself the same way after that. It's like this big, ugly spider, bigger than, any, the, the, bigger than anything you realized was in there. It got out and you saw it. And it's kind of horrific. Uh, this psalm is written after that happened to King David. Now, the, the, the context, you can find this in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Um, the Israelite armies were at war. David should have been with them. He should have been leading the charges. And he stayed home. And he's in his palace. He looks out. He sees apparently a drop-dead gorgeous woman bathing on a rooftop. He has her summoned, brings her to his home, and impregnates her. And then to cover it up, he has her husband, a guy named Uriah the Hittite, who, by the way, was one of his best soldiers. He's listed elsewhere as kind of like part of his special forces. Uriah the Hittite arranges for him to be murdered, a man who is absolutely committed to David. And we don't know exactly how long, but it seems that for at least nine months, David does not deal with it. And he is not the one who initiates dealing with it. God forces the issue. That's 2 Samuel 12. And it's out of that confrontation, not only from a prophet, Nathan the prophet, 
but really being confronted by God that this psalm comes out. And I want to say this. Everybody in this room has... I mean, I don't mean this irreverently, but I'm just trying to get our minds around it. We all have garden variety sins. I mean, we all struggle with selfishness, we, that, that kind of thing. But everybody in here has had moments where you heard yourself, you saw yourself do something ugly and hateful, that, that it became less challenging to say, that was evil. Maybe you didn't use those words. But you saw something come out that was, that was horrific. And here's the thing. On the one hand, this psalm is, ca- is calling us to brutal honesty. On the other hand, it is giving people like us great hope for when something big and ugly makes it out of the closet of the heart. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we could say, just as your servant King Solomon said, that there's no one living who does not sin before you. Oh, Father God, we are in need of not good news for people who make occasional mistakes. We are in need of good news for big sinners. And we pray that even if right now we are, we are not inclined to see ourselves as we really are, would you help us do that? We pray that the hands of the King would be hands of healing. 
And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, my last year, this is memory lane this morning. Uh, my last year of college, I lived in a house off campus with uh, three guys, great guys, very funny guys. And normally on a Sunday morning, and I'm not trying to sound hyper-spiritual, but normally on a Sunday morning, we would all go to church together. We went to the same church. And may, this may have happened at the most three times in that year that we lived together. But one of our, one of our number would sometimes oversleep. Now, this is a horrible thing for a minister of the gospel to say, but I learned to love when this happened because I knew what would happen when we returned. When we got home, you know, we'd like go to church then go eat lunch and come home. When we came home, we would come home to a spotless house. Now, what was going on here? I never discussed this with this, this housemate. I've never talked to, talked to him about it since. But I know what happened is that he overslept, and he woke up, and we're gone. And he felt icky. And so he just cleaned the house to a fairly well, which we never did as a household. You know, and I, I'm not saying just he never did that. We never did that as a household. But that is when he would do it. And I think I know why. Because it's the feeling of, I feel icky, I feel yucky, I feel stained, and I've got to do something about it. And really what it is, is sort of a Protestant penance. And we could all tell our stories. You know, I, um, after my father passed away last year, our session was gracious to give me some time off. And I went back to Mississippi and just saw some old friends. And of all the things to do on your time off to be refreshed... The last day I was there was a Sunday. Went to the church that I grew up in, looking forward to it. Went to a Sunday school class. I'm on the way to worship. I'm on the way to worship. Did I mention that I'm a minister? I'm in the hallway of the church, and I bumped into a guy I knew, and I didn't like something he said, and I got so angry at him in the hallway that I had to police myself and not let myself take the Lord's Supper at the worship service. Great job. And you know, at moments like that, you kind of wish there was some kind of tribunal of penance that you appear before them and they say, Brian, we condemn you to take the walk of buffoonery. You know, no! Take the walk and then, like, and then you're square. And it's, it's dealt with and it's paid for. And there is, no, there is no tribunal. There is no counsel. And then the reality is, even if there was, it would not deal with what you're experiencing deep down when you really blow it and you know, I blew it and I cannot go back in time and fix it. It's unfixable. It's maddening. It almost drove Martin Luther mad because he tried to do the ultimate thing to bring some spiritual uh, reassurance to himself that things were right between him and God. He became a monk. That was like the ultimate sold out for God thing to do. And he said, I out-monked all the other monks and it brought me no peace. Think about this. Um, a few years ago, I worshipped for the first time at a, a neighbor church, Tabernacle Baptist Church, just down the road, and, and have gotten to be friends with that church. And the sermon was from a verse in our psalm, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And in that, in fact, I still have my sermon notes. I feel like I'm bragging this morning. I used to go to church in college. I still have my sermon notes. I'm awesome. I'm not doing that. Okay. 
But I, 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 held on, I held on to the notes because they were good. And one of the things that Dr. Davis, the pastor, said is this. This is a quote. You can't rest if you're being harassed by your conscience. Very true. You cannot rest if you're being harassed by your conscience. Even if there was a council or a tribunal, it won't make the conscience be quiet. And believe me, David understands that. He has not done what we would call garden variety sin. I know there's no such thing. But he has sinned with a high hand. Adultery and murder. Those are big. What, what is he modeling to us in this psalm? So here's what I want to look at. What does David confess? What does David ask for? And what does David anticipate? Okay. What does David confess? What does David request, ask for? What does he anticipate? All right, first, what David's confessing. Now, when we think of confession, where your mind might go is think of confessing the, the bad thing that I did. But there's not just confession about himself. He's also confessing about who God is. And as a church, we have doctrinal standards. And one of those standards is called the confession of faith. It's not an admission of sin so much as it's saying, here's what we confess to be true about God. He does both kinds of confession. And let's start with what he confesses about himself. First off, he confesses that he sinned. Now, I know that sounds like stating the obvious, but you know, people have talked about the new apology is mistakes were made. Mistake, you know, kind of third person detached. That is not what you get in the first few verses of this psalm. It is first person singular. He's not saying she was gorgeous and it was a moment of weakness. It, how does he talk about it? Listen to the language. Verse 1, my transgressions. Verse 2, my iniquity. And I don't know how the word iniquity hits you, but what that word means is the grossness of sin, the ugliness and the perversion of all sin, that it's a twisted thing in God's good world. My iniquity, my sin. Verse 3, my transgressions, my sin. Look in verse 4. I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It was Evil, what I did. And by the way, for no extra charge, it is in learning how to really apologize to God that you learn how to really apologize to other people. I mean, have you ever felt yourself do a crummy apology and it did more harm than good? For instance, if you ever say to a friend or a coworker or a spouse, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. Listen, just save time and flip them off. It will save time and it will have the same net effect. All right, second thought, don't do that. But it's in learning how to apologize first to God that you learn how to apologize to people, to name it and say, I am the problem. I did it and it was wrong. And that's the first thing he does. But that's not all he confesses about himself. He confesses that I sinned in these particulars, but he confesses that I am a sinner. It's who I am. Look in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, the golden rule of interpreting Scripture is that Scripture interprets Scripture. 
let's be very clear. The Scriptures never, ever say that the gift that God gives to married couples to bring children into the world, that anything is sinful about that in marriage, or that the act of birth is sinful. No, those are gifts from God. But what is he saying? The way I showed up was as a sinner. In fact, as soon as I was conceived, I was already a sinner. I'm not a sinner because I sinned. I sin because I am a sinner. Before I did sinful act number one, I had the, the nature to do it. And that's interesting because that's not typically how we confess. We might begrudgingly confess to God, yeah, I blew my top and, and, and I got angry and, and, uh, and I vented and, and mistakes were made. The end. Rather than to really name it and to say, Lord, I'm just bent in on myself. I'm bent in on myself and I'm bent away from you. And I'm bent away from people to love them. To love my neighbor as myself. I'm bent. And that's how he confesses about himself. What does he confess about God? And by the way, before we leave that, it, some of you are from an Episcopalian background. One of the most beautiful prayers of confessing sin in the Book of Common Prayer, it's centuries old. It says this, that there is no health in us. And that's really true. If we think in our posture to God that, you know what? I'm, I'm largely good and I hit bumps. You will never enjoy the gospel. And I'll say this too, and we're going to talk about this later. Worship will be a lackluster experience for you because the people whose hearts are filled with songs are evil people who have found that God can make them clean and delight in them. If you were never evil in the first place, you will not sing. And what does he confess about God? Several things. First off, he confesses that God, ultimately, you are the offended party. Look in verse 6. Behold, uh, excuse me, verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, stop and think about that. David is saying, God, against you and you only have I sinned. Then the man that David had killed, Bathsheba's husband, was Uriah the Hittite, one of his most trusted, most talented soldiers, had him killed. Don't you think that the family of Uriah the Hittite, when they, you know, because this became part of the hymn book, don't you think they said, uh, well, excuse me, I think you sinned against us too. David knows that. David knows that very well, but what is he saying? At the end of the day, where the buck stops is with God. That yes, adultery was against my wives, and that's another sermon, against all my wives, and yes, it was against Uriah the Hittite, and yes, it was against the community of Israel, but at the end of the day, who was I slapping? At the end of the day... Who are we slapping with our sin? It is God Himself. He confesses, God, it was aimed ultimately at you. The apology ultimately is for you. And He confesses something else. He confesses, God, there's no manipulating you. This is really interesting. There's no manipulating you. One of the, 
uh, one of the greatest critics of religion in the modern period, when I say modern, I don't mean the last 10 to 20 years. I mean his, what historians would call the modern era, like since the Enlightenment. One of the greatest critics of religion was Sigmund Freud. And he said, what religion is, is, is really, it's, it's your psychological projection of feeling the need to do something about your guilt and your insecurity. So like, so like this big father in the sky that gives you your spanking when you've done bad and then everything's fine after that and we, we can get back to life. You've projected this God and you've come up with this whole ritual of how to do it. You wrote about this in Totem and Taboo. And then you look in the scriptures and you realize that over and over and over people are realizing you cannot manipulate this God. What does he say? Look in verse 16. He says, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. That's another weird statement. Who commanded sacrifices? God. Who commanded burnt offerings? God. And David knew that. He had memorized that probably. What does he say? That will not please you. Why not? Look at the next verse. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, look, I'm the king of Israel. I have a lot of resources. I have an almost unlimited supply of bulls and lambs and goats. If just bringing the animals to be sacrificed would take care of this conscience and this stinging, and this stain, I would be set. But it won't. Now, you do love the sacrifice of a broken heart, but the act of sacrificing the animals won't do that. What, what would this look like in our day to come to grips with this? Think about this. Think about, you know, some Christians will have what they'll call accountability groups. Think about a hypothetical Christian men's accountability group. What this might look like is we're going to get together maybe in the morning before work. We're going to uh, meet for an hour or so. We're going to have breakfast, have coffee. Uh, once a week we're going to talk about our struggles, our lives. We're going to be very honest about our sins. We're going to tell those to each other and we're going to pray for each other. We're going to pray with each other. Now, all that's great. All that's great. But you know what? The heart is very sneaky. And here's something the heart can do with that, is that, let's say, here's a man and he really does struggle with pornography. And he's been honest with his group about his struggle with pornography. And so he hits a bump and he fails. And maybe a couple of days later the group meets and he comes and he spills his, you know, spills his guts. And they listen and they're not condemning. And they pray together and they pray with him. And he comes away from that and he feels like, we're good. And has not dealt with God. That act cleans nothing. An improved devotional life, a more disciplined devotional life, the act of it cleans nothing. Me being the nicest person anyone knows cleans nothing. Now, that is overwhelming. So what keeps David from just being incapacitated? And you know what it is? It's the first 
verse. Okay, God, this was ultimately against you. And there's no manipulating you. Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. But the reason I don't have to lose heart is what? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And I love talking about this term in Scripture. It's one Hebrew word, and it means the love of the God of the covenant. That if He commits to you, if He sets His love on you, He will never, ever stop loving you. But what if I commit adultery? He will never stop loving you. What if I kill my lover's spouse? He will never stop loving you. That's incredible. That's what frees him, knowing what he knows about himself and knowing what he knows about God, to pray. All right, so what does he ask for? First one you've already heard. Mercy. Have mercy on me. According to your abundant mercy, he asks for mercy. Now, that might not sound like any big news if you're somewhat familiar with the Bible. But our flesh hates saying that. And God loves it. He loves it. I was thinking about, there's an incident in the Gospels uh, where there's a blind man and he's sitting by the roadside and, you know, blind, he probably has more acute hearing and he hears this crowd noise start to grow. And he asks somebody, what's going on? They say, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And this guy screams, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And these people come over to him and they get on his case about it. And say, don't disturb the teacher. He's healing people and he's teaching. And then he ramps it up. And screams, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And there are all these people that Jesus is having to have conversations with and teach them and heal them. And he stops in his tracks and says, call that man over here. Now think about that. All this need, all this crowd, all this noise, and the cry for mercy is like a laser through the fog. Jesus tells a parable and he says, you know, these two guys went to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, one's a tax collector. Pharisee stands up and he prays to God and thanks Him for His righteous life. And the tax collector, who's been ripping people off, he beats his chest and he won't even look up to heaven. He says, God, have mercy on me. And the English translations say, a sinner. In Greek it says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that that man rather than the other, went home justified before God. It's the guy who said, have mercy on me. There is no shark in the ocean that is more attracted to blood than God is attracted to cries for mercy from a broken heart. He hears it. He gravitates toward it. He acts upon it. It's the first thing David asks for. Second thing, he asks for cleansing. I mean, did you hear the verbs? Wash. Wash me thoroughly. Clean me. Cleanse me. Blot it out. Hide your face from it. Cleanse me. But there's a particular kind of cleansing that he asks for. And this is very important. Look in verse verse 7. He says, Purge me 
with hyssop. Now, what in the world does that mean? Okay, first off, what does purge mean and what does hyssop mean? Two of the best Hebrew scholars I know who've written about Acts both said the exact same thing about the Hebrew word translated purge. It's fascinating. They, they both said the closest English equivalent you can come to this verb would be descend. Now, can we stop and think about that? Can we stop and think about the act of taking another man's wife and you've got all these other wives. You've got every good thing in Israel because you're the king and God has just blessed. You've become this incredible golden king. And you take someone else's wife, not just somebody, one of your best, most loyal, committed soldiers, commit adultery with her, get her pregnant, have him killed. It is betrayal upon betrayal upon betrayal. When he says, cleanse me, understand he's not just saying, let's get my slate clean. He is saying this, de-adultery me. De-murder me. Now that is an audacious request. You cannot change what you did to this woman as evidenced by her pregnancy. And this child, there is no going back and fixing that. Uriah is in the tomb. There is no getting him out of the tomb. Descend me, purge me with hyssop. What does that mean? Hyssop was a plant indigenous to this area. I don't know how to describe the appearance of it, but it, it made for a handy sprinkler. And priests in the Old Testament would take hyssop and they would apply water, or they would apply blood. In the Old Testament law, two of the people that a priest would use hyssop to cleanse would be a leper. You know about lepers. Shut off from the community of Israel. Have to yell out, unclean, unclean. A leper, the only way to be cleansed, if God made you clean, and you had to be announced publicly clean, was for a priest to purge you with hyssop. The other was if you had come into contact with a dead body. If you had touched a dead body and you're ceremonially unclean, the priest was supposed to take hyssop and cleanse you. And, and, here, and here's the amazing thing. We get to see this through New Testament lenses. And guys, do you understand what we get to know that David was on to, but we get to see it in its fullness? Is that we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ. And he is simultaneously the source of the cleansing blood and the priest with the hyssop. And if I may put it this way, here I come with my anger and he can take his hyssop and take his blood and descend us. What if I come with adultery? He can de-adultery me. Are there consequences to adultery? Yeah, there were consequences, believe me, in David's life. But before God, can he descend me? He can. What if I'm a rageaholic? He can derage you before God. What if I'm an addict? He can de-addict you. That is an audacious statement. But either it's good news or it's not. And it's good news. 
Purge me. Cleanse me. Don't just clean me up, but be a priest to me. He says in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Don't just reform the heart. Don't just bring about behavior modification. Make a new creation. The New Testament takes that theme and runs with it. And the last thing is this. He doesn't just say, clean the books for me, descend me, make my record clean. He says, restore communion between the two of us. Because I ultimately did this against you. Look in verse 8. It says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. There are not many prayers for God to hide His face. You know, we ought to hide our face. He's saying, God, don't look at it. Cleanse it, purge it, and let us have what we had before. The joy of your salvation. Look in verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence. And that was not an abstraction for David. Because he watched God do that to his predecessor. When King Saul rebelled against God, David watched God cast Saul away from his presence. This is not an abstraction. Cast me not away from your presence because I'm not any better than him. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now understand, friends, how different this is than just being a religious person. If you're just a religious person, what is the answer going to be when you feel dirty? Is to get my act together till I feel clean. And David in the psalm is coming to us, and more importantly, the Holy Spirit is coming to us in the Word and saying, it is a dead-end street. It will not work. It will not work. That the greatest thing you can do is come with your stains, with empty hands, and no improvements or attainments to brag about and say, this is who I am. I did it. I did it because this is what I'm like. I did it against you. There's no manipulating you. You know everything that I'm saying more accurately than I'm able to verbalize it. And you're the God of abundance love, steadfast love, and abundant mercy. Have mercy on me. Clean, deep clean me, I who cannot clean myself. And restore what we had. The end game is not that I get back to feeling better about myself. That can be fueled by pride. The end game is to be in communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, what does David anticipate? I want to end with this. Two things. He anticipates that worship is going to be transformed and that witness is going to be transformed. Transformed worship and transformed witness. How do you get that? Look at verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. It will declare your praise. This is almost individual worship. Look in verse 18. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Sounds like last week. 
Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Here's what he's saying. There are crummy reasons to come bring your bull to the tabernacle, and there's great reasons to bring your bull to the tabernacle. If you bring the bull or the lamb or the calf to manipulate God, it's awful. It will dig you in. But if your heart is broken and you're lowly before God, and then you realize that He cleanses you in His mercy, He welcomes sinners to come, then, as a response, not to get it from Him, but knowing that you got it from Him, you bring your sacrifice. Man, worship spikes. Let me tell you something that I know without having talked with everybody in this room. If worship at downtown Presbyterian Church, I'm, I'm speaking more to our regulars, if you find it to be lackluster, if you find it to be flat, if you feel disengaged, I can just about guarantee you that you have gone a fairly long stretch without being contrite. that you've gone a fairly long stretch without being devastated about who we really are. And then being devastated that He still loves me. That He can have mercy on the likes of me. And the other thing that does to us is it transforms witness. He says what? You know, do these things in me and then sinners are going to turn to you. You know who are the best evangelists? People who have been through all the evangelism curriculum? Who are the best evangelists? The best evangelists are people who have a felt sense that, man, I thought I was good. And then I surprised me. And he made me clean. And if he can make me clean, he can make anybody clean. I don't know all the perfect ways to explain this to you, but you take my word for it. If he can make me clean, he can make anybody clean. He will make you clean. You'll have the joy of His face. You feel like there's a breach between the two of you, He will take it away. He'll heal the breach. Did it for me. They're the best evangelists. They're the most natural evangelists. They're the most organic evangelists. They're the most effective. And they experience the gospel. I want to end with this. Um, uh, Along the theme of my bragging morning, I've been reading a book, this awesome Christian book that I've been reading because I'm awesome. Uh, it's a book about um, English uh, English ministers in the 1700s, and now, but it's an excellent book. One of the main figures that it talked about, one of the main figures was George Whitfield. You might have seen that name. It's spelled like Whitefield, but George Whitfield, very effective on both sides of the Atlantic. But it was talking about his time in England, and there's an act, there's an extract from a sermon, and this is what struck me about it. He was preaching about when Jesus uh, rises from the dead and and uh, the angel tells the disciples uh, or tells the witnesses, go tell the disciples and Peter to meet him in Galilee. That he he not only says, I want to be reunited with you traitors, although he doesn't say it that way. I, I do want to be reunited with, but he singles out, make sure Peter knows. And Whitfield preaches on that. Here's what's amazing. I'll end with this. Two things that he said at the end that really struck me. He said, and he preached outside usually because the church had locked him out. He said, 
I am innocent of the blood of all of you. He said, you know, I have not preached works to you. I have not preached a legalistic sermon. I have preached grace and cleansing and freedom, the fullness of Christ. Do not ever say to God, no one ever told me because I have told you today. And you know what? Especially if you're visiting, I want you to know this. I don't say this often, but once in a while I need to say that to you. Having heard what you've heard this morning, you may not say to God, no one told me. You were told this morning. But the way he ended was to say, and therefore, he said, come harlots. Come prostitutes. Come drunks. Come tax collectors. He just started singling out, what are the biggest, splashiest, ugliest things you could be or do? And he says, come, come freely and be cleansed. Isn't that wonderful? Come rageaholics. Come consumers of pornography. Come self-righteous and be cleansed. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, you who hear prayer, hear us, we who, we who need cleansing, the ultimate cleansing of bowing the knee to Christ and saying, have mercy on me, and the daily cleansing of seeing what we're like and how we fall short, how we need washing, and how it's found in you. Oh, Lord, if anyone here has never believed, give them belief. If anyone here has never turned to you, give them the turn. For those who have heard this many times, make this new. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.